uh, in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. It says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So right there it tells us, and, and, and Peter will say the same thing in First Peter chapter 1, that, that God's word is eternal and is life-giving. And we've been talking about this idea of, of how we develop a Christian worldview the last few weeks, just in this short series, and how we think biblically, and the word being so important of that. And so I just want us to remind, be reminded for a moment as we begin uh, uh, what we're talking about when we come to God's word, that it's eternal, the grass withers and the flower fades, but it will stand forever. But then if we go to the very beginning in Genesis chapter one, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse three, it says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so God creates by his word. He speaks and things happen. So God creates by his word. We could then go to John chapter one. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the very word of God that is put on flesh and come to us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. But then we could go to Hebrews chapter one and it says he appoint, he has appointed the heir of all things, the he here being Jesus through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so God creates through his word. Jesus is the very word of God. Jesus, the very word of God, upholds the universe by his word. And then we could go to Romans chapter 10. It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Paul writes in verse 17. So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we start to talk about God's word and and what it does and the way God works. God's word is power. And he creates through his word and he recreates through his word and he saves through his word and he heals and he calms the storms and he upholds the universe and he calls people from death to life and he does it all by the power of his word. And so when we start to talk about having a biblical worldview, how to think biblically, how to see the world through the way God has revealed it to us. It's absolutely imperative that we are rooted and grounded in God's word. And so last week we were looking at John chapter 15, when Jesus says, you abide in my word and my word in you. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we're just talking about how vital it is to see that that is true, that we hold fast to God's word, that we're connected to the very source, the very power in which God creates and recreates and does all that he's doing. But today I want us to think about when we start to think about God's word and how we develop that biblical worldview and see those things. There's such an important piece of what Paul says to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter two that we just read. And so Paul's writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor, who's dealing with all sorts of false teaching all sorts of things that would lead people astray and draw them away from God. And he's just reminding him and he's encouraging him and he's telling him how to continue to be faithful. And he says there in in second Timothy chapter two, 
In verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so it's an important part of what Paul says there. And it goes and it fits with everything we've talked about the last two weeks. We talked about in Colossians chapter 2 how Paul writes that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That it all has, we have to see how the whole story of what God is doing in history holds together in Jesus. And then Jesus tells us, you abide in me. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if we're going to abide in the very word of God and we see that it all points back to Jesus. And then I want us to kind of bracket that with what Paul says here in Second Timothy. Is that we have to be rightly handling the word of truth. And it's so important that we think about this. And we, we come back to this. Because what Paul says, and I just read to you in chapter 4, is he says the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And they will go after the things that they want to hear. And they will not rightly handle God's word. And they'll pick and choose pieces of it. And they'll take parts out and they'll take the parts that they like. And the problem is when we do that, we're no longer abiding in God's word. We're no longer doing what Jesus calls us to do. And so it's important that we think about all of this together and we come back to this idea of rightly handling God's word. And how do we do that? How do we hold fast to what God's word says, especially in a world where we're bombarded with other ideas? And so really what we're talking about a little bit today is how do we read our Bible? How do we study our Bible? And there's a couple words I want you just to be aware of. One is hermeneutics, if you've heard that before. Hermeneutics just is a fancy way of saying how to study the Bible. And it's important that we understand how we come to God's word. But then the idea of exegesis versus eisegesis. Maybe you've heard those before. Exegesis means that we're taking the meaning from what God's word says. And we're clearly saying, here's what it says. We're taking the meaning from God's word. We're letting its word speak over us. God says this and I need to conform my life to what he says. Abide in his word. Eisegesis would be what Paul's warning about in chapter four here in second Timothy. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teachings, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Eisegesis is where we come to a conclusion of what we want to believe, oftentimes based on influences and the culture and how we feel about things. And then we go try to force that into the Bible. And that happens a lot. We take things and we try to kind of work it in there and go, yeah, see, it's right here. And we do when we do that, we're doing the opposite of letting God's word stand. And we're now forcing our opinions into it. And so how do we guard against that? And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. And so real simply, what we're going to do is spend most of our time on just some common mistakes we made that lead us to this eisegesis. Forcing things into it, missing the fullness of what God's word says, not rightly handling the word of God as Paul's calling Timothy to and us as well as disciples of Jesus. And so I want us to think about some of the common mistakes that lead to that. And then I'm going to end with just a couple things that help guard against that. And really, we're just going to spend a couple minutes on that at the end. But we will pick up with that next week and kind of flesh that out more. And so as I've said the last few weeks, these several sermons just kind of are running one into another. They all go together to make the whole. And so let's start with common mistakes, how we miss, how we can lead into error. But there's there's one thing I want to and this is obvious, I hope, but it's important that we consider this. 
If we're not rightly handling God's word and we're taking it out of context and we're misusing it and we're kind of forcing meaning into it, let's just be clear. It's no longer God's word. If we've now taken it and made it to say something that it doesn't say, it's no longer his word. I mean, I know that's really obvious, but it's important that we understand that because everything that I was just talking about at the beginning of all the things God does and his word is powerful And God creates and he recreates and he saves and he brings from death to life through the power of his word. But if we misuse it, that it is no longer his word, it's not going to have that power because it's not his word. I think about it with my children. They do this to me all the time. They say stuff like, Dad, can we go out to eat? Can we go out to eat tonight? And I go, maybe. I'm not sure what we have. I need to talk to your mom. We might have soccer practice or whatever i'm not sure that we'll be able to do that and then later they come back and they go okay where are we going to eat and i go well we can't because you have practice and your mom's not home yet and i've got to go to a meeting so we can't go out to eat tonight and they go but you said i go no i didn't (laughs) i said maybe and it was dependent on all these other things and so we can't do it today and they go no 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 you said you said we could go out to eat and it's they're misrepresenting me right Now, that's a silly example, but we do the same thing with God's word. We take it out of context and we twist and we distort it. We go, God says, or people start to say that. And it's like, no, that's not what the Bible says. And so I want us to think of the ways that we do that. And kind of shining a light on that helps us become aware of it, helps us guard against it. And so the the first thing I would say to you is, is that we, we say things that the Bible doesn't say simply out of ignorance. Biblical illiteracy. We don't know what the Bible says. And in our culture today and right now, we have a big problem of biblical illiteracy. We don't know what the Bible says. And so we attribute things that we've heard or somebody told us and we go, yeah, that's in the Bible. I remember seeing a a study years ago, just different sayings and how many people thought they were from the Bible. They were biblical. One one of them was God helps those who helps himself. Just so we're clear, that's not in the Bible. It doesn't say that. And in fact, in some very real ways, it runs the exact opposite of the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us. God has saved us by grace through faith and what he does for us. Be more accurate to say God helps those that realize they cannot help themselves. And so we say that, though, we say things like that, and it just becomes part of our regular language and the way we speak. And people go, yeah, yeah, that's in the Bible. That's biblical. But what happens, and I want you to think about as we're talking about our worldview and the way we operate and the way we see things, once we start to integrate some of those things that actually run contrary to what the Bible says, and it becomes part of our worldview and the way we think, and God helps those that help themselves, and suddenly we've got this hole in our worldview that's not biblical. In fact, it's the opposite. If you really push that, and I don't want to spend a bunch of time on it because it's a pretty straightforward point, But God helps those that help themselves kind of leads to a pride and an arrogance and look at me and I'm doing this and right. And it runs across what the Bible says or against the grain of what the Bible says. And so simply put, we can lead to error just by ignorance, attributing things to the Bible that it doesn't say. But the second thing that say this is more common within the church and how we operate and even loving the Lord and truly a believer and wanting to follow God. But what we'll do is we'll, we'll take the Bible and what it says and we will take it out of context. We'll divorce it from the context in which it was written. 
God inspires his word through real people writing to real people at certain times and places. And there's a context of what's happening and what's being said. And oftentimes we'll just kind of leave that out. And we'll take just part of it and, and pluck it out. I don't know if you ever remember, this is something I remember from my childhood, and I, I looked it up this week, and it actually goes back to way before I was a kid, so maybe it, depending on where you fall in that, it's been around for a while, but the, the old magic eight ball, did you ever have that toy? Have you ever seen that? I remember my brothers and I having one when we were a kid, and it's just a little ball, and you flip it over, and you ask yes or no questions, and then you flip it back. And it's just floating in water, a die comes to the top, and it tells you certain things, and you say, you know, does so-and-so like so-and-so? And it says, odds are good. And you're like, ah, you're, you know, whatever. <laughs> or did I do good on my test? N- not likely, you know, and you're like, ah. Oh. But it's, I mean, it's a silly thing that obviously it's, it's for entertainment and you do that. But the, the thing is, we, we often treat the Bible that way. We kind of just flip open the Bible and pick and choose a verse. And this is what I'm dealing with. And so I'm going to grab hold of this verse I'm going to make this my verse. I might even memorize it. Might claim it as like, this is my verse. And I start to apply it to to different situations. I I memorize it. I I do existential Bible study. This is what it means to me. But what happens is is sometimes we do that and we take it out of context. Devoid of, of what the point of the text was. And what God had inspired the writer to write and to who they were writing to. And so we take verses and we misuse them. And so I I think of a verse that that jumps to mind in that. For years, I've had the the, uh, privilege to do different things with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So I get to go speak to sports teams. I do it right now with my son's team for the the middle school football team here in Dawsonville. And I've gone different times for the last, I don't know, since I was in seminary, 15 years ago. And I've done this talk several times at different FCAs. FCA, for, for whatever reason, it's a great organization, but on their T-shirts and a lot of their materials, they love the verse Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we put it on T-shirts and we talk about it all the time. But, but what I've found in those settings in FCA is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It has come to mean like a bunch of athletes in the room I can hit a home run if I have enough faith. Or I can go out tonight and score four touchdowns if I've got enough faith. And now there's some truth in the, if you go out and you hit a home run or you score four touchdowns or you do whatever you're trying to do and accomplish in sports, anything good you do is going to be through God's strength, right? You're made by him. You're held together by the power of his word. You have been gifted in any gifts that you have because God has given them to you. And so that's true to an extent. But what happens is that verse gets taken and it's pulled out of context. And it's put on T-shirts. And in every FCA meeting I've gone to, I've done this talk multiple times. And I'll say, who knows Philippians 4.13? Most of the time, somebody will have it on their T-shirt. <laughs> but there'll always be at least a handful of kids that can quote it. And they'll say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, yes, great. But then I'll ask, who wrote it? Who wrote that verse? Who did God inspire to write that verse down? And most of the time, almost, I think every time I've gone, at least one kid, depending on the group size, there's several that will know. Paul wrote Philippians 4.13. Paul wrote the letter to the church in Philippi. But then I'll ask another question. I'll go, where was Paul when he wrote it? 
And, and so far, I think, I was trying to remember today, I think every time they've gotten that right, at least one person is known. Paul was in prison. It's one of the prison epistles. And he wrote this letter in prison to the church in Philippi as he's in prison in Rome to encourage them. I go, that's great. But then the last question I ask is who knows the context of that verse? What does it say right before that? And in all the times I've done that talk, all the times I've gone and done that, not once has anyone ever known the context of the verse. Not once. And so Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10, says this. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. This is Paul writing to the church there in Philippi. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I go, so what's the context? What's Paul saying here? He's written to this church that's showing concern for him and they're helping to support him and and he's thanking them for that. But then he's telling them, I have learned how to trust God in every situation, no matter what it is. And he says, in abundance and in need and want and all these, when I've had a lot, when I've had nothing, I can do all of it through Christ who strengthens me. And so when we take that verse and we make it to be this thing that that I can hit a home run if I just have enough faith. It misses the very heart of what Paul's saying there. Paul's saying that when you go up to bat and you strike out and you fail miserably, I can do that because Jesus is enough even in that. And when I hit a home run or I do something great, I recognize that I can do that because it's all Jesus and what he's done for me. And he is better than anything else. And my identity is not found in being really good at sports. And it's not this prosperity gospel thing that says, if I just have enough faith, God will give me all these things. No, what he's saying is that in every situation, no matter what it looks like, Jesus is enough. And I can do all things through him when I see the reality of his glory and what he's done. And that's something far different than what we put on T-shirts. And it doesn't mean the t-shirt's bad or, or you're wrong for kind of taking it and putting it in that way. But we miss the glory of what God's word says when we divorce it from the context. And so we do that so often. We take verses out and we don't understand the fullness of what God's saying and we settle for far less. Or we distort it and twist it in a way that it's saying something that's the opposite of what God is saying. And that's scary we start to focus that way. And when we put it in the context of what we're talking about, of developing a biblical worldview, that's not good. Because now we're believing things and we're holding to things, thinking they're biblical, and it's the opposite of what God says. And so it's so vitally important that we don't take it out of context. If we're going to rightly handle the word of truth, as Paul's calling us to, we need to take it within the context of the way it was written, the way God inspired it. But the third thing... I would say is that we take part of scripture, we take part of it, and maybe we even take it in context and we get the main idea right. And we are being biblical and we're being faithful and we're being thoughtful and this is what it says and here it is in context. 
but then we miss what else the Bible says on the subject. Right? So we have part, but not the whole. And so when we do that, we, we take just part of it and, and we make it, this is the answer. And it's like, but the Bible actually says some other things about that. And this is very dangerous today. I see this regularly in our culture for this reason. We have gotten to the point where we really struggle as a culture with nuanced arguments, with things that are multifaceted. And the Bible is the very wisdom of God given to us, and oftentimes it is nuanced. And it has great big things to say about the things we're looking at, but it takes it from several different angles and it gives us a full picture. And if we take just part and we collapse it down, this is the answer, this is what it looks like, the end, and we miss what the rest of the Bible says, we can quickly get into error. And so I see this all the time in our culture. We've gotten to this thing where everything is hyper-divided into extremes. It's either this or it's this. And the Bible says a bunch of things. You go, well, not exactly. The Bible actually speaks to that, and it speaks to that, and it tells us this. And if we miss the fullness of what it's saying and we just take part, we just take part of it, even if that part is true, we can miss the fullness of what God's saying. And so we need to see the whole I think about Jesus and in his ministry and the way he talks to the religious leaders of the day, the very most religious, the ones that that knew the Bible, the Old Testament that they had at the time and they could quote it and they could say it. And Jesus would regularly say to them, you don't know the word of God. He says, you know, neither the word of God or the power of God. And what he'd say is you're missing part of it. You, You can go read in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus, he pronounces seven woes to the Pharisees. And in one of those, he tells them, you tithe and you give and you do these things. And he says, but, and and, and by the way, he says, you tithe and you do these things and you should, you're supposed to do that, but you miss the weightier matters of justice and mercy, right? You're doing very kind of legalistic things, taking a checklist and doing them, but your heart is far away from me. And Jesus will say this over and over. And so we'll take part of it and get it right, but we'll miss the heart that's behind it or we'll miss another piece of exactly what God says so clearly. And if we do that and we just have part but not the whole, we can easily fall into error. And so one of the things I see today regularly is I think well-intentioned believers that want to hold fast to the truth and we are called to hold fast to the truth. Right, what what uh, Timothy or what Paul writes to Timothy here about preaching the word and reprove and rebuke and exhort, right? Tell the truth and hold fast to it. And yes, that is a clear command of Scripture. Guard sound doctrine, right? Rightly handle the word. Come back to these things. Say these things over and over. And so I hear people say, "Well, I am a truth teller." And our world is a mess and I'm going to stand and I'm going to say the truth and I'm going to say it and I'm going to tell everybody and I'm going to tell them how wrong they are and I'm going to tell them what the Bible says. And you go, great, we're called to do that. But then they do it in such a way that is so ugly and so harsh and so argumentative and I want to be right and I want to show you where you're wrong. And what happens is we miss the very heart behind it, that God loves people and he's calling them to himself. We miss what Paul writes in Titus chapter 3. 
right? We become self-righteous about being right and telling people how they're wrong. And we miss when Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we miss that heart that we too are sinners in desperate need of God's truth. And we become very self-righteous. But what Paul says is remember how God saved you and what that looks like and his grace to you. And so, yes, we speak the truth. Right. First Peter three tells us in your hearts, honor the Christ, Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the re, for the a reason for the hope that was in within you. We, we quote that verse a lot. Right. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. You should speak truth. Yes. But, you know, the very next thing he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And it's always together. There's always this picture of what it looks like. Yes, we speak truth. And yes, we boldly proclaim the glory of who God is and what he's done. Yet we always do so with graciousness and kindness. And so we have to take the whole of what scripture says, not just part. And it always has to be rooted. And we'll come back to this as as we end here this morning with how do we begin to do that and how do we guard against it? And I'll go back to what we talked about the very first week. What Paul says there in Titus chapter 3 is we root and ground it in the glory of God and what he's done for us in Jesus. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You are saved by what Jesus has done and nothing else. That is wonderful and it is glorious and it's truth that God does for us what we could never do. But it's also radically humbling. It's not God who helps uh, God who helps those who help themselves. But it's the God who helps those that recognize that they can never help themselves, that they cannot do it. And that produces in us a great humility and gratefulness that it's all what God has done for us in Jesus. And so if we're going to read rightly God's word, it's always going to be rooted and grounded in that truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But just giving you practically and what we'll pick up with these next week of how do we guard against it and how do we grow in it? Read the Bible in context. Read the whole. He says all of God's word is inspired and profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking. Every bit of it. And we live in a culture where everything is kind of condensed down into 200 characters. Or just these little blips or, or headlines or just little pieces. But we need to be reading God's word. In context and what it says. And so spend time to actually read what it says. Don't just take the, the verse of the day and go, yeah, that's it. And I'm good. Right. You, you have your phone that tells you the verse of the day. Great. Now go read the chapter that it came from and see the context. 
and which God and what he's saying and the fullness of what's there. And so take time to read the Bible in context. But then and we're going to talk about this next week. Read across the Bible. And we'll, I said this two weeks ago across the Bible. What we mean by that is what it says on different subjects. Everything. And we could say that God says that man is broken and sinful. And that is true. Totally depraved apart from the, the breaking in of the Holy Spirit in our life and opening our eyes to see Jesus. And we can go, man's so sinful. And we just keep harping on that. And we're so awful. And we're so... But man's also made in God's image. And God loves man so much that he's come to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so we have to read across the Bible and see everything that it says. And so it's important that we develop that habit and we continue to do that. But the last thing I would say to you, and we'll we'll end here this morning, is when we read the Bible and we're coming to these things and looking at it, we're reading it for God's glory. I said this the very first week, but the Bible is not a story about you, but it is about God and what he's doing in his pursuit of you. And it's for his glory. And his glory is for our good. We are most satisfied and most joyful when we see that it's all about God and his glory. And so when we come to scripture, come to it reading it that way. And as we do those things and we read in context and we read across and we see it's God's glory and it holds together in Jesus, it begins to guard us and keep us against those ways in which we miss it. And when we do that, it's what we started with at the very beginning. It is the very word of God that has power for salvation. It has power to change us because it is truly God's word. And so pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of your word and what it teaches us. Who you are and the way you've revealed yourself to us. I pray that when we are tempted to, uh, to just quickly grab things and, and not spend time seeking your face and, and, and following hard after you. That you would remind us of the glory of who you are that we would long to spend time with you, that we would long to spend time in your word and, and reading it in context and spending time thinking about what you've told us and how that applies to us and what it means for us. I pray that you would give us a heart to continue to seek us. Would you conform us to your image? Would you continue to change us as we spend time in your word seeking your face? We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.